going here. We are uh, today beginning Romans chapter 3. And uh, last week we were looking at verses uh, 25 through 29 of chapter 2. And uh, so before we read our passage today, uh, kind of glance down through those verses we looked at last week and even the verses before that that we looked at previous week. What are some of the things we've been talking about over the last couple weeks and last week in particular that you remember? Okay. Talking about law and circumcision uh, as it pertained to the Jews. What have we been discovering? Okay, if you don't keep the law, uh, you're just the same as a Gentile. You can have the law, you can, you, know, you can know the law, you can be circumcised according to the law, uh, which was, of course, the sign of the covenant. And uh, you can have all of that, and uh, you're no better than the person who doesn't have those things if you don't actually keep the law? How well do you have to keep the law? Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> to the letter. Every detail of the law. Okay? What else have we learned? Conversely, if you keep the law, if you're uncircumcised, the fact that you keep the law makes you as you are. Okay, it makes you the equivalent of being circumcised if you, in fact, are a, a keeper of the law. Uh, even though you're uncircumcised, it's as, it's as though you were circumcised. What was this circumcision thing all about? Okay, okay. They felt like if they were circumcised, they were they were in scot free, so to speak. They were. Uh, they were not subject to the wrath of God. I, I cited uh, one rabbi last week. Uh, I cited one rabbi who said that Abraham stood at the gates of Gehenna or hell and made sure that nobody who was circumcised would uh, go, go to that place. So, uh, so they were pretty sure if they were circumcised that they would, uh, that they would uh, not incur the wrath of God for their sin. Uh, Paul didn't seem to think that. What is Paul's view of circumcision? Okay. 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 And who was it assigned to? Okay. Circumcision was assigned to the individual. That he or she, that he was a member of the covenant community. Okay, so uh, it, it it doesn't serve to save a person, but it serves to remind that person that they are associated with the covenant community, and that they are participant in all the blessings and the responsibilities of being a member of that covenant community. 
And that is the purpose of circumcision. So circumcision really is valid, and we'll talk a little bit more about that today, really is valid when we consider what it was intended for. The problem is the Jew had kind of elevated it to a level beyond what it was actually originally intended for. What else did we learn? Okay. Okay, good. So the point that the point that Paul is making is that when it comes to the issue of salvation, when it comes to the issue of a person's actual standing before God, it's an issue of who is one who is a Jew inwardly in their heart and who is circumcised in their heart. Was this idea of being circumcised in the heart was this was this a new thought that Paul had come up with? People are shaking their heads. Okay, okay. So this goes all the way back to the law itself. That clear back in the law, in Deuteronomy, uh, the Lord talked about having their hearts circumcised. So this is not a new idea. The Jews knew this. They had just lost sight of that. They had forgotten that, either conveniently or otherwise. Okay. So Paul talked about he being a Jew who was one inwardly and that led us to talk a little bit about the different ways that the scriptures talk about being a descendant of Abraham or being the seed of Abraham what did we learn about that okay there's four different ways that the scripture refers to or, or uh, to us the seed of Abraham or there's four different kinds of seeds of Abraham if you will that scripture talks about what are those four Okay, which would be anyone under Abraham's authority or just anyone who Okay. So all the males in his household were circumcised and uh, when it talks about his descendants and God blessing his descendants in some cases it's talking about all of, all of those who were descendants of Abraham so it would not only be his descendants uh, through Isaac but it would also be his descendants through Ishmael and his descendants through the sons of Keturah. Okay? So he had other sons and he had descendants through those. And so there's the general sense that we talk about the descendants of Abraham. What's the next way? Okay. Okay, so we have his special descendants who are still physical descendants, but they are they're set apart in a special way according to God's elective purposes. And, and that, that involves Isaac and then ultimately through Jacob rather than through Esau and, uh, and then on down through the, the uh, sons of Israel. Okay? And so those are the special descendants who, have, who enter into then this kind of special covenant relationship with God as a special group of people. Okay? And then the third classification would be the singular seed. What are, we, what are we referring to there? Jesus. Okay. Jesus is referred to as the seed of Abraham. And there is some, there is some sense in which the, the promises that are given to Abraham are ultimately and completely fulfilled in the singular seed of Abraham. And that's Christ. Okay. And Galatians talks about that. And then the fourth and final way is what? 
the spiritual seed, okay? And the spiritual seed are all those who, like Ron was talking about a minute ago, all those who are Jews in their heart, who are circumcised in their heart. So they have no physical connection with Abraham. The other three classes all have a physical connection with Abraham. And to be one of those classifications, you had to actually be a physical descendant of Abraham. But in the case of the spiritual seed, you may or may not be a physical descendant of Abraham. What is important is, what, is whether or not you are the faith of Abraham. So it's important when we're going through Scripture, and particularly if we're going through Romans, and we're thinking about Paul's talking about the Jews and the descendants of Abraham and those who are of Abraham, it's important for us to understand each time we encounter that which one of those categories Paul is actually talking about. So Paul is not saying that a person who is a descendant of Abraham physically is not a Jew. What he's saying is that a spiritual descendant of Abraham is not necessarily a Jew. That's what he's saying. When we get to Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, and he talks about the Jews, it would be very confusing for us to begin to look at who he's talking about in chapters 9, 10, 11 in light of what he says here in chapter 2. In other words, if we think in chapters 9, 10, and 11 that what he's talking about are the spiritual seed of Abraham, then that really confuses us. That really messes up the whole point of Paul's argument in 9, 10, 11. That's why it's important for us to understand these, different, these four different categories. And what he's talking about in chapter 2 are the spiritual seed of Abraham. Those who in their heart are of the faith of Abraham and who have in their, and had their hearts circumcised. In other words, they've had the sin in their hearts cut away, he says, by the Spirit of God. And of course, we don't know how that happens. We don't understand how that works yet because we haven't gotten to that part of Romans. What Paul is telling us simply is that's what we need. Okay, So we, we recognize now that we have this need. We are under the wrath of God. And we have this need to be circumcised of the heart, but we've got to go a little further in Romans before we figure out how does that happen. Okay? Anything else that we talked about last week that you want to mention? Well, kind of in the bigger picture of chapter 2, he's explaining the things, or appears to me, he's explaining the things that people rely on yes. to be right with God that do not do it, yes. do not make it. And does that have any application to us? I wonder why you haven't been making this point in application all along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, of course, we did last week. I don't know if you were in here uh, when we talked about that. But last week we talked and we mentioned some of the things that we, in our modern day, us Gentiles, if you will, I think most of us in here are Gentiles. Uh, Except for Les and Peggy. We figured out last week they're Jews. That's right. Uh, that's right. I didn't know that. <laughs> well, you, 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 yeah, they didn't either. They just learned that. One of the lost tribes of Israel. <laughs> In our very own classroom here. <laughs> One of the things you mentioned is people rely on well actually you didn't mention this one but you I expected you to say was the church membership mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, the elders here talked about purging our membership and when they contact these people say well we haven't seen you in years you're listed as a member and the people get very concerned yeah because it sounds like 
they're relying on that when they're standing the Yeah, yeah. And we did, uh, you're right, I didn't mention church membership, but we, we did list several things that people oftentimes rely on to think that these are the things that place them in a right standing with God. And particularly in our context, oftentimes just the idea, well, you know, when I was 10 or 11 or 12 or 15 or whatever, I, uh, I walked the aisle. You know, I responded to the invitation. Well, you can walk a lot of aisles and still end up in hell. And, uh, and, and even the idea that I prayed the sinner's prayer, you know, uh, it's possible, it's actually possible to pray the sinner's prayer, but not to be circumcised in the heart, as Paul says. To not actually be a repentant and broken sinner. And uh, so, so these are some of the outward things. Now, the question is, do these things have any value? Is, it of any, is church membership of any value? If it doesn't save us, why bother? If, uh, if contributing and giving to the church doesn't save me, then why bother doing it? If, uh, if the sinner's prayer is not that which saves me, then why pray the prayer? And this is the question that might pop in our mind. And, of course, I hope you understand that I'm not saying, as we'll see with Paul here in a minute, I'm not saying these things are of no value. I'm saying they're of no value if we rely on them for salvation. There's only one thing that saves us. And that is the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And when we throw ourselves upon His cross and claim His sacrifice in our hearts, we are saved. Not by anything that we have done but by what he has done. Well, uh, so now we come to chapter 3. And Paul, as we saw last week, and we've been talking about week after week, is Paul's just been hammering away on this thing about everybody is under, everybody's in this predicament. This is the universal condition of man. All are sinners. All have broken the law. All are exposed to the wrath of God. And we've been seeing this over and over again. I want to give you a little encouragement. We only have one more week of that. <laughs> and then we get to some good news, okay? But Paul wants us to understand that this is an absolutely universal predicament. And there is not a one of us who can raise our hands and say, except me. Okay. So, that's what Paul wants us to understand. And please bear with him if he belabors the point a little. Okay. But there are actually people, and they're not just Jews, who think that these things may be true about everybody else, but they're not true about me. And Paul wants us to understand they're true about us. Okay? So, so he has brought us to that point. He's made this argument, but he's got Les and Peggy back there, and they're still not satisfied, right? They've got our representative Jews back there, and they're still not satisfied. And so, in chapter 3, Paul is continuing his diatribe, as we talk about. Remember, we're not using that in a pejorative sense. The diatribe, in a literary sense, is, is an, an imaginary debate, Okay? And Paul is carrying on this debate and, and his, his uh, Jewish interlocutors here who are debating or arguing with him over this point 
raise their last four great objections to his argument. Now, what is interesting here to me is, well, let's just read the verses and then I'll point out what I want to point out. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to look at, Lord willing, the first eight verses today. He says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that thou mayest be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory... Why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported in some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Now, as I said, we're still kind of in this diatribe mode, but there's kind of an interesting transition that takes place here in these verses. You'll notice... Uh, we're still in verses 1 through 4. His imaginary opponent here is still kind of talking in the third person. He's kind of putting it all in the third person. But in verse 5, Paul says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. And then in verse 7, he says, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory... And it almost seems, as one commentator puts it, that by this point in the diatribe, Paul is no longer arguing with some imaginary person out there. But he's actually debating with himself. It's Paul the Apostle arguing with Paul the Pharisee. It's almost as if if he can... Remember in his mind when he was making these arguments against the Christian gospel. And he's so so there's this intensity of feeling as he's confronting. And and again, I don't know for sure this is what's going on, but it, it kind of seems that way that Paul is really beginning himself to identify with the arguments that his supposed imaginary opponent is making as if. I have made these arguments. And I think it might be helpful for us to think in those terms a little bit as we go through Romans because I think Romans gives us an insight into some of the things that happened in the life of Paul that led to his conversion that we don't get anywhere else in Scripture. You know, we read about Paul persecuting the Jews and then he goes off on the Emmaus Road and he gets that by this light from heaven and Jesus speaks to him and the next thing we know, he's converted. And we don't really get any insight from the story in Acts 
as to what was really going on internally in the heart of Paul that brought him to a point of conversion on the, on the Damascus Road. Was this all just kind of a sudden bam thing that just happened and there was nothing that led up to it? Well, I would suggest to you that as we go through Romans, we're going to discover that Paul was really struggling with some issues, even though he was, as he says, a Pharisee of Pharisees and a Jew of Jews. That there really were some issues that he was struggling with, and I think those will come out as we go through the book of Romans. And I think this passage itself, maybe, is a little bit of a clue, a little bit of a picture into the heart of Paul as he struggles against the logic of the gospel. And, but even if, it, even if this isn't Paul arguing here, this is, this is the Jew who is finally, he's kind of been backed into a corner. He recognizes the kind of the relentless logic of Paul about keeping the law and about what circumcision is really all about. And he's kind of backed into the corner. And he, now he's really desperate. And he's got to show to Paul the impossible logical implications of what he's saying. In other words, he wants to show to Paul that Paul's log- that the logic of what Paul's saying leads irretrievably to conclusions that Paul himself would not be willing to accept. And of course he's right. Paul is unwilling to accept these implications, but what Paul is saying is my argument doesn't lead there. Okay. So so our our opponent here in chapter 3 actually raises four objections in order to demonstrate this logical impossibility of Paul's argument. And uh, you'll pick those up, those kind of four objections, you'll pick them up in verse 1. He does this with four questions. And in verse 1, it's what advantage has the Jew? That's his first objection. His second objection is in verse 3 when he says, What then, he says, does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Okay, so that's his second objection or question that this opponent is asking. Then in verse 5, his question is, God is not unrighteous, is he? Okay, that's his third objection. And his fourth objection then is, Well, then, why am I still being judged as a sinner? Okay, those are the four questions that he asked based on his perception of what Paul has already said. And Paul, of course, is going to argue that that's not really what he has said. So what, the, what this opponent is doing is he's trying to accuse Paul of calling into question four things about God. He's trying to show that Paul's Gospel, as he calls it, calls into question the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, and the holiness of God. Now, of course, all of those things are unthinkable to Paul. He would never teach or say anything that would call any of those things into question, but that's what he's being accused of. So this is how then the argument proceeds. Uh, and we might point out here that this is not just 
Paul's imaginary opponent here, or even Paul before he was saved, what some of the things maybe he was thinking and arguing. But this is reality. This is in reality what all of us do when we are confronted with the reality of God's wrath for our sin. What we try to do is we try to show either one that it would be unrighteous or unjust for God to punish me for my sin. Or we try to call into question the character of God Himself. We try to justify our sin and say, well, somehow there's some, you know, there's, there's a justification for my sin that gets me off the hook. Or, lacking in that, to just simply say, it just wouldn't be right for God to do that. So, so these are not just kind of far-off theological arguments for another day back then when, when, when the Gentile church was wrestling with how does this whole Jewish-Gentile thing work out. But this is rea- in reality a thing we struggle with today, isn't it? In fact, I struggle with it in my own life as a believer. When God comes and He points His finger at the sin in my life, and begins to put the pressure on and begins to exert a little discipline on my life, my first thing, my first response in the flesh, of course, is to justify myself. To say, well, you know, really, it's working out for the better this way. That's the argument that this guy says Paul's making. Or, the, the other option is I just go, well, God, you're just not being fair with me. You don't discipline other people for doing this. Why do you discipline me for doing this? Or, or you know, Lord, it's just not it's not fair because because I do all these other things for you, and I'm you know I'm I'm really faithful to you in these other areas. So why do you pick on me about this one little area? Somehow I try to impugn the character of God in order to get out from under His thumb. Okay, so it's not just something the unbelievers do, is it? But it's something we even as Christians can do. Well. So, what is the first objection that is raised here in verse 1? Okay, what is the advantage of being here? Okay, Paul has just made this telling argument in verses 17 through 24 about the law not being sufficient to save us. And then his argument in verses 25 through 29 of chapter 2 about circumcision not saving us. And so the poor Jew is standing here and he's going, so what's the point? Why the law? Why circumcision? What's the advantage of being a Jew? Now, what is his, what is his assumption there? What's the underlying assumption behind him asking the question? That, that there is an advantage or that he thought there was an advantage, right? I thought there was an advantage to this thing about being a Jew. And now you're telling me the law doesn't work and circumcision doesn't work? What's the advantage of being a Jew? And having just gone through the last two weeks of our study of verses 17 through 24 and then verses 25 through 29, we, of course, would expect Paul to say what? There isn't any. There is no advantage to being a Jew. It seems like that's what he's been arguing, right? 
And so what does he say? He says it's great in every respect. Excuse me, Paul. (laughs) Did I miss something here? See, that's what I'm talking about. Is 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 Paul's imaginary opponent here has thought he understood what Paul said, but he still hasn't understood what Paul said. You see, Paul did not say that the law was useless. And Paul did not say circumcision was useless. What Paul said was the law was useless for what they thought the law was useless for. And and circumcision was useless for what they thought circumcision was useful for. But in fact, he says, there is a great advantage. In fact, he doesn't say just a great advantage. He says, yeah, advantage in every respect. Right? Is that what he says? Great in every respect. Okay? So now, what do we want from Paul? I want to know what all of it is. Well, I want to know what they all are, right? And we're expecting a list, right? Yeah. And what is the list? Too short. <laughs> what is it? The oracles of God. The oracles of God. And he stops there. But he says, first. He says, first, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So now we really are expecting a list, right? Second. And what's second? What's third? (laughs) Well, you know what? We actually do get that list. But we don't get it in chapter 3. Oh, we won't get it in chapter 4 either. And I'm afraid we don't get it in chapter 5. We we don't get it in chapter 6 or 7 or 8, but at the beginning of chapter 9, we'll get that list. So if you're anxious to know what other things come in the list besides the oracles of God, you're just going to to be here when we do Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, okay? Because that's where we get the rest of the list. And there's all kinds of neat things in there. There's uh, circumcision and there's the temple services and there's the law. And there's all kinds of things in the list. He lists, I don't know, six or seven things. When he gets to chapter 9, I don't know if he even remembers that he started the list in chapter 3. I certainly didn't remember when I got to 9 that he started the list in chapter 3. I always wondered in chapter 3, where's the rest of the list? Okay, well, it's in chapter 9. But what is important is that, first of all, God has given, entrusted, he says, to the Jews, the oracles of God. Now, that word there, the Greek word that's used there, kind of comes related to that, to the word logos, uh, the, uh, the, that means word. But the particular Greek word that is used there is, is kind of a specialized term. And it is used by the Greeks uh, not so much in the sense of the word of God as we think of the word logos, but rather it's used in this sense of an oracle. What is an oracle? Okay, a prophecy or... How would a, how would a pagan use the word oracle? How would just a Greek pagan use the word oracle? Okay. Okay. From where? Okay. Okay, so God speaks through something. 
But God is speaking in some way. He's communicating. And in the case of the pagans, it may be a god or it may be the gods. And we, we read about the oracle at Delphi. Okay, So there's this special something you know, going on at Delphi where one of the gods or the gods are speaking to mankind. So it's the idea of God communicating to man. And when the Jews, uh, Jewish writers writing in the Greek, when they would use the term, uh, they are referring, of course, to Yahweh. They are referring, referring to the God of Israel as he speaks and communicates to man both his uh, a revelation of his intention and his purposes, his promises, if you will, as well as the responsibilities and obligations that are, that are inherent uh, to, the, to the message that's coming. So it's... So, so when he uses the term the oracles of God here, he's not necessarily speaking in the limited sense of just the law, but he's speaking just in the broad sense of God who spoke out and gave his promises and, his, and revealed his purposes. And he, and he has done this in a very tangible, audible or uh, writing in some way. He has excuse me, communicated his intention and his purposes and, and, and what he expects of mankind. Okay. Now, what is remarkable, the advantage that the Jews have is that God has done this for them. He has done this to them. He has given to them the oracles of God. And the psalmist, when he's back in Psalm 147 and he's going through and he's praising God about all kinds of things that God does, and then right there at the end of the Psalms, he talks about how God has given to Israel His Word. He's spoken to Israel, he says. And he says, you have not done this with any other nation. Psalm 147. This is a pretty remarkable thing. Of all the nations on the earth, of all the peoples on the earth, all over the earth, God has chosen one little group of people on that one little piece of land there at the east end of the Mediterranean and He came to them and He's given His oracles to them. Now, that's, that's pretty, that makes you pretty special, right? That's a pretty special deal. And Paul's either so carried away by that or the implication of that is great. He never even gets to number two. This is really remarkable. But I want you to notice when it says that, that God transferred or brought these oracles to Israel, what, how does it say He did it? He entrusted them. It doesn't simply say He gave them His oracles, but He says He entrusted them with His oracles. What is the implication of that word? Okay. Yeah. yeah, there's the idea of stewardship. There's the idea of responsibility with the oracles of the. Yeah, really. Uh, and so, so in Paul's mind, the reception of the oracles of God includes not only all these, among other things, all these remarkable promises and blessings that God promises to give to his people or to those who believe in him and trust in him. Not only are there all these promises, but we must remember there are also all the attendant obligations and responsibilities. 
So when we get to the we get into the book of Deuteronomy, we have both what? The blessings and the what? Curses. This is all part of the oracle of God. But the Jew has conveniently forgotten the curse part. We all do that, don't we? We we tend to kind of well, you know, forget all those. Let's just you know, let's just claim the promises. Let's just claim the promises of God. Have you got a promise from God today? You know, people say, well, you got a promise from God today? Well, how about this? Have you got a command from God today? <laughs> we don't do that, do we? We don't go up to somebody and say, well, you know, you're in quiet times, did you get a command from God? We don't do that. We'd rather just focus on the promise part. And that's the problem with Paul's opponent here. He's just kind of focused on the promise part. But, God, but Paul says you've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, so his, uh, his uh, friend here, which is, as I kind of, well, I like to think about it, he's beginning to kind of see himself in his friend. <laughs> his imaginary friend, he's beginning to see himself. Uh, says, well, okay, so God's done all this stuff for the Jews. He's made all these promises. But, yeah, some Jews have not obeyed. Some Jews have not believed. Some Jews have not been faithful to the obligations of the oracles. I'll admit that. I'll allow that. So, Paul, what you're saying is that because some Jews have been unfaithful to the oracles, because some Jews have been unfaithful to the covenant, what you're saying is that God's just going to be unfaithful to the whole covenant? That He's just going to erase all that He's promised, everything He said to make the Jews special and to save the Jews and, 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 and all that sort of thing? And so, Paul, what you're saying is because some people are unfaithful to the, to the oracles of God, that God now is off the hook that his faithfulness to his covenant and his promises is now null and void? Have you nullified the faithfulness of God? That's what it looks like to me, Paul. That you said because some people haven't kept. Well, that's not quite exactly what Paul said in the first place, right? What did Paul say? He said they all had not kept it. He didn't say some of men kept it. He said they all haven't kept it. Okay. But but the argument is, okay, Paul, you're saying that just because some people are really, really bad, God is not going to be faithful to the things that He promised. Well, of course, that's not what Paul is saying. In fact, what Paul is saying is, in fact, God is faithful to what He's promised. And one of the promises He made, if you don't keep the law, this is what's going to happen. But we, again, we don't think about that, do we? We, we cross that off our mind. You know? What do we hear over and over and over again from the pagans? You know, God is love. How often do you hear pagans say, God is righteous. God is holy. No, God is love. God hates sin. Oh, I don't hear him say that very often. God cannot look upon sin. I don't hear him say that. Oh, God is love. Well, He is love. But He's also holy. 
And He's also righteous. And He also cannot look upon sin. And so, so Paul is thinking in this more balanced view of God, but the Jew is just thinking in this kind of lopsided, well, God has given us all these promises and He's going to do all these goodies for us and He's really going to dump on the Gentiles because they're really bad. But, but He's made us promises. And so even though we have sinned, and we, you know, we've sinned, even though we have, He's made us these promises and He can't go back on those promises because if He does, He's being unfaithful. And Paul, when you say that God's going back on His promises, you're saying God is unfaithful. And Paul is saying, I am not saying God is going back on His promises. I am, in fact, saying God is keeping His promise. So Paul responds to this charge that he's nullifying the faithfulness of God. And he says, may it never be. Rather, let every man be found a liar. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And actually, what he's doing there is he's alluding back to Psalm 116, where the psalmist is kind of going through this whole thing of praise towards God, and uh, and and but he's doing it in a, in a in a tension situation where he's confronting his adversaries and people are betraying him and letting him down and. And so at one point there in Psalm 116, I think it's in verse 11, he says, oh, I thought all men are liars. He just, kind of, he just kind of looks around and he says, I can't trust anybody. They're all liars. But in that context, he's talking about the faithfulness of God. And what, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, even though every man is a liar, God remains true. What Paul is telling us there, among other things, is that truth is not a democratic phenomenon. We don't vote and decide what's true. It doesn't matter how many of us in this classroom agree with Paul. God's Word is true. It doesn't matter how many people believe that God will judge the world. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if 50% of the people believe it or 25% of the people believe it or 75% of the people think God won't judge the world. God's going to judge the world. It doesn't matter how many scientists say God did not create the world. I don't care how many degrees they've got. I don't care how sophisticated they are. I don't care how great their arguments are. The truth is, God created the world. And you can argue that it just kind of, poof, came into being out of nothing. You know, you can say that all day long and you can get all your buddies to say it and you can get everybody else to say it and you can get everybody in the world to say it. Let God be found true that every man is a liar. But he's saying something more than that. This comes clear as the argument proceeds. He's actually saying something more than that. He's saying that the contrast of God's truth is made more obvious by the existence of our lives. 
How do I know that? Well, because he goes on next and he quotes, an, he, this time he quotes specifically another psalm, Psalm 51, in, in David's great confession of his sin with Bathsheba. He's just been confronted by Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. And his response at some point is he writes this psalm, which is apparently an expression of how he felt immediately after being confronted by Nathan. And he's confessing and he's admitting his sin. And he says at one point, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And then he gives the verse that Paul quotes here. Now, Paul quotes it a little different than David says it. I'm not going to go into that uh, this morning for time's sake. But Paul says in in quoting uh, David here, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And what David, David has just heard from God and God has told David, okay, David, this is what you did and this is what's going to happen in your life because of what you did. And God lists a series of things that he's going to do in the life of David because of David's sin. He talks about some grief he's going to experience in his own family. Uh, Through the prophet Nathan, he prophesies that whole incident where his son uh, takes all of David's wives up on the roof of the palace and has illicit relationships with all of his father's wives up there in public on top of the palace. God prophesies that to him there. And it's right after God says all that stuff to him that David says, this is right. God, my sin has shown your righteousness as you judge my sin. As you have responded in the way you have responded to my sin, you are shown to be righteous and you have been justified when you have judged. Now, it's a little confusing for us, but just to cut to the chase, Paul's opponent understands what Paul is saying. And he says in uh, verse uh, 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? And then Paul, just thinking, oh, I can't believe I just said that, says, I'm speaking in human terms. <laughs> He's apologizing for even having articulated the possibility that God might not be righteous. But, but this is what he's being accused of. Because what his opponent is saying is, Paul, from those verses you just quoted, what you're implying is, my unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. So if my unrighteousness demonstrates His righteousness, then if He is to... He's going to judge me. Wouldn't that be unrighteous? What's His argument? What's the, the logic, if I can use that term, of his argument? He's saying God's using a double standard. How? Better. How? Well, he's saying if, if the righteousness is demonstrated by unrighteousness, that is unrighteous. And so, therefore, God's righteousness cannot be demonstrated that way. Not quite. Close? Close, but not quite. Close. What he's saying is that if God, uh, if God 
demonstrates his wrath on my unrighteousness, then he's unrighteous. It's not just that my unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. But if God, having had his righteousness demonstrated by my unrighteousness, then punishes my unrighteousness, then God is unrighteous. Why? Okay. The idea is God has somehow profited or benefited by my unrighteousness. Right? And since God has profited or benefited by my unrighteousness, it would be wrong for me to punish or to be punished for that unrighteousness. Right? So, for example, we have a judge. And uh, he's kind of on the take. Right? Okay? So, uh, obviously, the parallels break down here. But we've got a judge, and he's kind of on the take. So, he's got this criminal who comes before him who has robbed a bank. And he's robbed the bank, but he's given half the proceeds to the judge. Right? So the judge has profited by his transgression. And then the judge turns around and sends the guy to jail for robbing the bank. Is the judge just? Of course he's not. Is he righteous? Of course he's not. Okay. Well, what... What Paul's opponent is trying to show here is the absolute illogical, irrational nature of Paul's argument. That's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say that, Paul, what you're saying is our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, so then he turns around and judges, which proves that God is unrighteous, which puts us in kind of a vicious circle, right? This is just, your, your logic, Paul, is totally out of reach. You know, there's no... There's no rational argument here. You're forfeiting the righteousness of God in pretending that my righteousness justifies His righteousness if, in fact, God judges. What is the implication? The, what, the, what the guy is trying to argue, what Paul's opponent here is trying to argue is, well, of course, God is not going to judge us Jews because if He does so, He would be unrighteous. Because my unrighteousness has shown or demonstrated the righteousness of God. Well, that's not quite what Paul said, though. It's not quite what Paul said. Paul didn't quite say your unrighteousness demonstrated the righteousness of God. He said something close to that, but a little different. And when, when his opponent accuses him of saying that his unrighteousness demonstrated the righteousness of God, he's actually accusing Paul of saying something Paul did not say. And we'll get to that in just a minute. So, Paul responds and he says, May it never be, for otherwise how would God judge the world? And Paul's argument is here, if you say God can't judge the Jews, he can't judge anybody. And a Jew isn't willing to accept that because the Jew is plenty happy to have God judge the Gentiles. So he's not willing to accept that. That's human nature too, isn't it? We're plenty willing to have God judge other people for the things they do. But it's not so bad when we do it. You know, we do it out on the street every day, don't we? You know, somebody cuts us off in traffic and we honk at them and rail at them and then drive down the street and do the same thing somebody else, Right? just reality. 
Okay, well, that's a pretty minor example, but in reality, we do that with our sin. We want God to judge the sin of others. Let us off the hook, because it wouldn't be righteous if God judged us. Because we have reasons for why we do what we do. Well, so, then he says, he comes back with this final argument. He says, but if through my lie... So, it's like he's... His opponent here is not willing to let this one go. Okay. So it's kind of the same argument he just made. He's just making it more graphic. If by my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? So I lied, and when I lied, the truth of God abounded to his glory. So my lie showed the truth of God so he got more glory. So why am I being judged as a sinner? Because really, it really wasn't sin, was it? Because God got some good out of this. So my lie really wasn't a sin. You see how perverted we get in our logic when we're sinners? We find every conceivable way to somehow figure out that it isn't as bad as it looks. And so he says, my lie demonstrates the truth of God. So the truth of God abounds to His glory. So why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say... And then Paul interjects here. The fact, he says, this is what people are actually saying about me. That what I'm saying is, let us sin. In verse 8. So let us do evil that good may come. That's what people are saying I'm saying. And that's not what I'm saying. Rick, it, it seems like he's implying something here. He doesn't actually doesn't specifically state, but it's that God created the standard, and because God created the standard, that made them do the wrong. And so now God's coming back around and judging them for it. Uh, That's kind of the argument, yeah. But what is the what is the fine point that Paul's opponent missed? What is the thing that Paul's opponent is saying, Paul said, that Paul did not really say, but said something else? And it goes back to verse 5, uh, excuse me, verse 4. That never, may it never be, rather, that God be found true, though every man be found a liar, just as written you, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. When was God justified? When did God prevail? with David. It wasn't when David sinned. It's when God judged his sin. It's when God judged his sin. And so, you see, Paul is not arguing that, that God somehow benefits by our sin. Now, it is true. God, as we see throughout Scripture, God oftentimes takes man's sin and he turns it and he, and he gets some good or some benefit out of it. But that says God turns, providentially turns circumstances. But that's not what the argument is hinging on here. The argument is hinging on whether or not God just inherently benefits by our sin. And Paul is saying, that is not what I said. What I am saying is that God is glorified when He judges sin. 
when He demonstrates His righteousness by judging sin, that's what glorifies God. If God never judged sin, we would not know that God is righteous. Right? we go on sinning all day and we'd still not know that God is righteous. We only know God is righteous because He judges sin. And that puts us in the predicament we're in. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God will judge it. And it's not a question of God not being faithful to His promises to bless us. It's a question of God being faithful to His promise to judge us. It's, it's a question of God's faithfulness to be true to who He is. A holy, righteous God who cannot look upon sin. And that's where Paul's opponent has gone off track because he thought that somehow God was getting a benefit just by him sinning and God just letting it slide. But that's not how it works. God's glory is manifested. His truth is manifested when He calls me into account for my sin. When He sends Nathan, or when he sends Nathan into my life to say, David, you have sinned. And then David says, my sin has shown the righteousness of God because God has acted to call me into account. And so once again, we are left in that desperate condition of us all facing the wrath of a righteous God over our sin. And once again, we cry out as we have week after week, God, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Okay? Next week, we'll go on as Paul reaches his grand conclusion to this argument.